Let's get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll finish this book. Uh, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for more than we know, but because of your word and your son, we know a lot that we need to be grateful for. It is amazing, O Lord, that you love us uh, and, and the work that you have done for your people, the gifts of grace and mercy that have, you have extended to each and every one of us. And so we just take this moment, Lord, and we acknowledge that though we do not understand the full breadth nor the depth of your love, we, have in, we do know that we enjoy it, that it gives us tremendous hope, and that it does engender in us a desire to love you more, to seek your face more. And we ask, Father, that as we do this in this hour and in the hour to come, as we come together to study your word and to worship you, our one and true God, that you would um, continue to grant your grace to us and use this time both to sanctify us and to glorify your name. Pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay, today's is chapter 11. It is the last chapter of this book on forgiveness, and it is called Extending Forgiveness. Um, Extending Forgiveness, any ideas what might be meant by that? So, essentially, our... This time, this this particular lesson is going to try to focus as much as possible on um, reconciliation. Um, this I don't I, I don't know. Maybe that there have been some. I've, I've not been able to attend all the Sunday school uh, classes on this book, and this graphic may have been presented previously, but I, it maybe has been a while, and so I thought we would start by reminding ourselves of what we have been looking at. So this, this graphic is provided in the book on page 11 of the book, so right at the very beginning. And it basically is, is the sort of the outline that Keller has followed throughout his book. Okay, and so you'll notice that there are three dimensions to Christian forgiveness. And I think, um, and those are a vertical, an internal, and a horizontal dimension, all right? What makes, what part of this, of those dimensions makes this, takes this from being human forgiveness and turns it into Christian forgiveness? Forgiveness. Right. 
Right, so it's the vertical, right? It is, it is the, the forgiveness that's... So, so Christian forgiveness starts or is based upon God's forgiveness of us, of his people, right? <clears throat> that, that, is the, that, that would be the fundamental difference between I, that would distinguish Christian forgiveness and human forgiveness. And if you'll recall, at the beginning, Keller even wanted, pointed out that until Christianity came on the scene, there, there wasn't a well-defined and understood notion of forgiveness in most societies. Most of our societies were based upon what? Huh? Shame and honor. They were honor societies, okay? And, and, and relationships were, were managed uh, with, this, with this notion of honor and discredit to one's honor, right? And the offender was one who discredited one's honor and therefore needed to be uh, dealt with, all right? With shame, with, you know, retribution, revenge, those kinds of things, all right? Okay, so, so th this, this graphic starts with that fundamentally for Christian forgiveness, it begins with the fact that um, God has forgiven us. When we come to the question of, of forgiveness, I think every one of us needs to realize that we, get to, we live on both sides of this, this horizontal equation. We are at the same time the, the offended in certain cases. And unfortunately, more often than we like to think about, we are the offendor in some cases, right? Um, and so as we talk about, you know, we, we, we've been focusing on the offended and how the offended responds to uh, a, an offense. But the fact of the matter is, is that we need to be paying attention to what we are discussing here for ourselves because as offenders, we need to also begin to train ourselves to be more, to be more appropriate in our response when we are confronted with an offense. If you'll recall, when we looked at Leviticus, the, the passage in Leviticus, it talks about rebuking the offender. And we basically, and, 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 and in uh, Keller's dealing with forgiveness, he talks about confronting Offenders. Well, that's not easy to do. Primarily, it's not easy to do. Why? 
because offenders don't typically respond well when confronted. And it's just easier to not do it than, than to confront people. Because it, it, it creates situations that you can't control. And you don't know how the outcomes, well, you have some idea of how the outcome will be. And, and for Christians, that's a problem. Okay? That should not be the case. But it is. And, I re- and, I, and so I think f- we, we haven't really pointed to this as, as, as much, but I think, really, we need to, t- to take a look at ourselves in terms of how we respond when we are the ones who offend. We don't teach on this much. We don't talk about this much. But this is an important aspect of Christian forgiveness. Okay. Um, so we, this, this basically has been the backdrop of what we've been talking about for 11 chapters, or counting today. Um, Keller begins this chapter by looking at Matthew 5, 21 through 25. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother says to a brother or sister, Racha, um, will be liable to the council. And Racha means a senseless, empty-headed man. All right? You fool. Okay? Um, You fool will be liable, and, and, okay, it's, And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so the first question would be, is Keller condemning all forms of anger? I mean, is this a categorical... Uh, injunction against anger. No, no. Why would we even say? Why would we say that? Based on what? How about based on the fact that Jesus got angry? Okay, 
We know of we know of several occasions where Jesus got angry with how the the temple was being used, and in a fit of anger, made a whip and went around beating the people that were in the temple. That's pretty serious anger. Jesus became very angry at the tomb of Lazarus. We are told. All right, in this case. I believe he he was angry with the he was angry about the I think the the human plight of of being fallen and subject to death. All right, and and anyway, so and and Keller points gives a really great. Um, definition of constructive anger, I think, when he says, <clears throat> anger is not intrinsically sinful. It can be energy released to remove an object that is harming someone we love. Um, and then he gives the examples of Jesus' anger. But Jesus does give two examples of the kind of of anger that he is referring to. He, anger that leads to slander can land you in court. And anger that leads to unjust criticism can land you in hell is essentially what Jesus, to the two examples that Jesus gives. So when you are angry, ask yourself, what am I defending? This is Keller. Is it ourselves, our ego, our pride, agenda, and image? Or is it the good, the true, and or the beautiful? Jesus connects in this passage, though. And by the way, this is Matthew 5. So where is Jesus when he is talking about this? This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. All right? So Jesus is speaking to a large group of people. And he connects selfish anger to murder. Thus equating the emotions and responses that lead to murder with the act itself. Keller says, just as an acorn contains the entire tree and million of, millions of other acorns, all within its little cup. So murder begins with the seed of inward sinful anger. And when you indulge it, you step onto the path that could end in murder. He then points out that Jesus moves on to, to a couple of case studies. In this passage, he moves on to a couple of case studies. One concerns a fellow believer. And basically says, if, you have, if your brother has something against you, okay, and the other is an adversary, so someone who is not necessarily a Christian brother, but someone for whom you have uh, caused an offense and has a, something against you. In both cases, the admonition is to quickly 
allow as little time as possible to transpire, seek to settle the matter, and be reconciled. Two surprises. <clears throat> Jesus does not deal with what to do when somebody makes you angry. He's dealing with when you make somebody angry. The other surprise is the urgency that Jesus places upon reconciliation, which reflects the same idea of Paul in Ephesians 4.26, where he says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In both cases, Jesus and Paul are not so much laying down literal rules for timing as they are denouncing the procrastination and, and avoidance that characterizes almost all of us when we know there has been a breach in a relationship. And that, of course, harkens back to the, the point I was making early on. The hard part about it is, is the response often of the offender. We just don't know how they're going to respond. So that's Keller's take on the passage. And I'd like now to just take an aside and, and take a slightly different approach to it. And I have to give Dennis some credit for this. He, he pointed this out to me yesterday morning when I mentioned something and he pointed me to uh, Genesis 4. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the beginning of chapter 4 of Genesis. <laughs> What does it come after? What's in Genesis 3? The story of the fall, right? The beginning of the fall, I guess you could say. The initiation of fall, right? So it's the first story to follow the first sin. Okay? And so we've gone from simple disobedience to murder, you know, immediately. Okay, now, is there something instructive in that? I think there probably is. 
Um, If we think in terms of the biblical theological categories of creation, fall, redemption, fulfillment, and consummation, then we have to place this story in the fall, right? This is a story of the, about the effects of Adam and Eve's sin on the rest of their progeny. Obviously, if it wasn't for the fall, we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about forgiveness. Let's look a little bit at this, this story. Cain either misunderstood or he willfully um, <clears throat> chose to bring improper, an, an improper sacrifice to God. I mean, I don't know that the passage makes clear which it is. I think, you know, you could maybe infer from Cain's attitude towards his brother that that pros- probably this was a willful act on his part. But the passage doesn't really make that specific, but um, he brings improper sacrifice, and God, as he should, does not accept it, and Cain is upset, but Cain does not repent. He chooses to, not to see his sin, the sin on his, his part, but instead he sees it as a loss of honor with respect to his brother. His place has fallen, his brother's has risen. Cain becomes angry. God challenges Cain about this, and he rebukes him. But Cain does not listen. He does not heed the rebuke. Instead, he replays the video. I love this idea. He replays the video over and over in his head. And his anger continues to rise against his brother. It rises to the point that he kills him. In order to kill his brother, Abel had to become contemptible in Cain's eyes. Cain came to see his brother as a fool worthy of death. Only then can he act. And I believe this is what Jesus is drawing out in his injunction. Notice also, when God confronts Cain, he double downs. I don't know. I'm not his keeper. So Jesus, I believe, is really, he's, he's take, if I truly, he immediately associates anger with murder. He has to have this story in mind as he does that, okay? And it ties what he's talking about back to the fall. And the fall, what comes in, in the, in the, in the, in the biblical story 
line, what, with the fall, what is needed? Redemption. So Jesus basically, I think, is saying, you get angry with someone. In your, your anger, you harm them in some way. This can go one of two ways. You can double down. You can tell yourself some version of, you owe them nothing, for they are, are contemptible. They're idiots. This path, fully realized, ends in death. Or you can cool off, recognize your precarious position, repent, and settle with the one you've harmed. This path, fully realized, leads to reconciliation. In Matthew 18, we see the opposite case of when you are the offended. If your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Things that Keller notes. The breach in the relationship between two Christians is not just the concern of the two. It is a concern of the whole church. The offended must confront the offender. First, He's to do it pri he or she is to do it privately and keep it just between the offended and the offender. But Keller encourages that it be done, especially, especially in this, this media age, it's very tempting to, well, let's just send a text. Let's keep some distance between this. All right, or let's do it in an email. Or maybe I'll call it. He says, do it face-to-face, -face, all right, in person, whenever possible. And taking a cue from Matthew 5, do it quickly before you have time to talk about it with others so that you can honestly say that this is just between the two of you. Do it positively. Tell him his fault actually translates a Greek word that means sharp, painful admonition. And I think, and we go back to this, 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 this struggle that we know that's exactly what's going on here. None of us want to be told that we've messed up, especially towards some, by somebody, that, by, by the person we've messed up with. We don't want to hear that, do we? And so that is, uh, and, and I'm, 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 I'm harping on this because I, I really think that, that and, and this, is, this, is, this is 
this is to me. Because I don't, I don't like it. I really don't. And I get it. The first thing that happens in me is my, it trips my temper. Okay? I'll admit it. It does. And, and I'm, we just, we've got to kind of rewire ourselves as Christians about this. If we as Christians can, in a, in a constructive fashion, listen and consider when someone comes to us and says, I'm hurt. You did this, and, and I don't know what to do about it. Okay? If, if we can listen to that in some better and more constructive way, consider how many relationships would be better today. Tell him, okay, but you are there not to, and, and then the other thing to remember is as the offender confronting the offendor, you are not there to win an argument. You are not there to show them how bad they are. What you are there to do is win the brother. Now, you're the offended. <laughs> you're hurt. You're angry. How do you do that? <laughs> this is so backwards to human nature, is it not? How do you do that? David. Yes, sorry. In humility. Well, it definitely takes some humility, that's for sure. How you do that? It's the vertical. The only way you do that is that you recognize that you have been a beneficiary of this very process. And not in some and, and not in some singular offense, but we have sins under sins that are forgiven. And how were they forgiven? They were forgiven by the Son of God hanging on a cross who in that moment said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What is that? <laughs> but, but that's what we are beneficiaries of. And we are called as Christians to extend that same kind of forgiveness to one another. Not once, not twice, 70 times 7. Why? 
because the supreme forgiveness is ours. I don't want to minimize. There are certain offenses that are horrendous. And there are certain things that cut really, really deep. There is pain. And there is loss. Even between brothers and sisters. And I don't want to minimize those emotions. I don't. They're real. And they're hard. But to the extent that we can see the love of God for His people manifested in His sacrifice in order that He might forgive. If we can, to the extent that we can hold on to that, it works towards softening, if you will that pain. Because we have, no matter the offense against us, we've been forgiven greater offenses over and over again. I'm not saying this is easy. At all. I'm just saying as Christians, this is what we are called to. Keller goes on to say that in attempting to reconcile, so you, you're going and you're confronting a brother or sister because the point is you love them. You want them to be better. And you want the relationship, the, the, the harm that's been done to the relationship between you and them to be healed. Now that can't be done. I mean, if you're mad, if you're angry, then you're going to him because you want retribution. You want some form of, of, of getting even. Now, it may not be exactly even, but you're, you're wanting them to know and feel in some degree your pain, your hurt, right? If you're angry and have not forgiven, that's the frame of mind that you're in. And so it starts with the internal. It starts with forgiving inside. Letting go of that offense. Letting it go. Stop playing the video. Okay? Again, didn't say it was easy. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, Seth... Seth basically says, said, you let it go and you give it to God. Okay? Now, I think there's some nuances to that, but he's exactly right. Okay, and I, I think I've said it enough. I, what I'm saying here, 
I understand. We're not talking about easy stuff. But we're talking about what is revealed to us, right? We're talking about what Jesus is calling his people to. That's what we're talking about. And that's what we want to try to be, is people who reflect the image of their Savior. So Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 in tandem. So Matthew 5 is the offender. Matthew 18 is the offended. Taken together, what do these case studies teach us? If a relationship is broken down, it is always your move to initiate relationship repair. Point, okay, so the point being, Jesus told the offender, go settle with your brother. Jesus tells the offended, go to, to your offender and confront them. Okay, so either way, it starts with you. <clears throat> While sometimes the torn relationship can be one-sided, in many cases of relationship breakdown, there are usually some things for which both sides can confess, both sides can forgive. That's Keller. In summary... The gospel prepares you, this is Keller again, the, only the gospel prepares you for both sides of the, of the Christian reconciliation model. It humbles you enough to make you able to be a forgiver, and at the same time, it affirms and fills you with such sense of self-worth that it makes it that it makes you able to be a repenter. It is only great humility and great joy that will help us as a church, a community, to keep relationships in repair. <laughs> then Keller says, let's take a look at what Paul says. And he goes to Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
So the principle is stated at the very end. Do not be overcome by evil. Remember what God said to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. And it overcame him. But instead, overcome evil with good. Keller draws five points from this passage for doing this. First thing he says is, pray for them. The passage says, bless those who persecute you. To bless means many things. But above all, it means to pray for them. To pray for God to bless them. And if you're praying for them, it is hard to stay angry. It is hard to pray as a forgiven sinner and not forgive. Forgive them. Repay no evil for no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but overcome evil with good. So so those are you know basically parsing the whole paragraph, but those are words in this paragraph that we've just read. Okay? It's verses 17, 19, and 21. And here we see the essence of forgiveness is turning away from the pursuit of revenge. We confront them for their sake, for our victim's sake, and for God's sake, not for revenge. Don't avoid them. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Some say, I have forgiven the person, but I want nothing to do with them. And Keller points out that's actually a form of retaliation. He says, even if the person remains hostile so that you can't restore the relationship, you don't contribute to the hostility. You act kindly, as helpfully, as respectfully as you can. You are always to seek a relationship. And give them what they need to whatever degree they allow. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This means if there is an opportunity to do something to the wrongdoer in order to meet his or her needs, do it. But Keller points out that this takes discernment. <clears throat> As we have been saying, it may be what th that may that it may be what they need is confrontation since it is never loving to make it easy for someone to go on sinning. So it very well may, may be that what the person really needs is the confrontation. If you fail to confront them, you may be failing to love them. 
if you confront with too much relish and anger, you may be failing to love them. If you give them help in such a way that it enables them to abuse you or enables them to continue in their sin, you may be failing to love, you, you are failing them to love them enough to want them to change. Do it humbly. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's a hard one for me, to be honest. <laughs> As my family will attest. Although, I will admit, over time, the Lord has managed to show me that I'm not near as smart as I think I am. Um, the power for it all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The NIV translated as, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. So what do you understand that to mean? I want to tell you right now that I was really surprised the direction that Keller went here. What do you all understand this to mean? I mean, I think Seth alluded to it when he said basically you, the offense, you give it to God and let God deal with the, you know, that let God deal with the consequences of it, right? Which is true. You give it to God and let God deal with the consequences. Any other thoughts? Yes, sir. Speak up. Okay. That's, that's kind of the direction I, I think of it as. That, that, that in the end, God will, God will see that there, is that there is justice, right? Because that is one of the fundamental attributes of our God. He is a just God. And his justice must be met. Right? Yes, sir. Okay, so Tom basically said that in the example where Jesus tells the, the person, if you, are, if you are presenting your sacrifice and it occurs to you that you have offended somebody, go. That in that moment, God, as the avenger, is acting to convict that person and cause them to go and repair the relationship. Okay? All right, well, <clears throat> Keller gives the example, yes, leave it to God. God will let them have it. And in a way that we can't, God will see to it that justice is taken care of one way or the other, right? <laughs> Keller says, if you don't 
tell God what to do with his wrath. By the way, in the, in the book, Keller points out that um, Frank Lloyd-Jones basically says, if, if that's your response to that, you've completely missed the point. And then Keller goes on to say, if we don't tell God what to do with his wrath, but allow him to send it where he wills, what does he do with it? And Jesus Christ, God comes, takes the penalty of justice himself. The old King James Version of the Bible translates verse, verse 19 as vengeance is mine. And that reminds us that the wrath that should have come to us came to him. Vengeance due to us literally became his. The enduring lesson of the parable of the unforgiving servant is this. It is only when we see a king acting as a servant voluntarily for our sake that we as servants will stop acting like little kings and judges. No one learns by trying. Before love is something you give, it is someone you receive. You learn to love by first experiencing love, then you pass it on. You will be patient only if you see someone saving you through the costliest patience and forgiving you even as he dies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is what can change you. That is what can change us. In fact, that's the only thing that will change us. So in summary, and since this is the end of the book, we're going to, in a few words, try to summarize the book. We start by receiving God's forgiveness for the first time. In that moment of salvation, you see your need. You offer, you, you see your need, you see the real need that you have for it. And the offer, and you, and you offer authentic repentance. And in that moment, you experience forgiveness as part of what makes you a child of God. And then ongoing from there, we experience his forgiveness time and time again, don't we? He makes the point that we make confession and repent for sin. And then he has this, this statement, for sins under sins. And I have to admit, I'm assuming that he, that he 
reference that somewhere in the book. I couldn't find it, and I don't remember it, but uh, what a concept, sin under sense. We recognize the danger. We see our guilt. And once and, and again, we experience forgiveness over and over again. Re-experiencing forgiveness is part of salvation. Jesus is sacrifice. Jesus as a vicar. Jesus as the desire of nations. Jesus as the one we desire above all else. I can tell you that that's a lifelong journey to get there. And we never get there completely. But that is our goal, that Jesus is the greatest desire of our heart. Giving and receiving human forgiveness. It is always on us. It's our move. We begin with internal forgiveness. We tap into the resources that come from divine forgiveness. We see our spiritual poverty. We identify with, as a sinner with the sinner. We identify as the offended as an offender with the offender. But we also have spiritual wealth because we are in Christ. We are new creatures. And we have experienced what we are called to give. Um. Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. It is a promise not to keep bringing up the offense to the person, to others, and to myself. Stop playing the video. And then it leads to external reconciliation. Tell the truth, name the wrong, and do it, do and do all justice that is within your power to do. Offer any repentance that you can that is warranted. Offer forgiveness, declaring and the put aside of getting even. Overcome evil with good. More than just forgiving is reconciliation. And be open to rebuilding a trust relationship. I'd like a little more discussion, but we're out of time. So I guess we'll conclude there. Thanks.